I have the privilege this morning of introducing someone who's very close to my heart because I'm married to her. Um, but she has a phenomenal word to share with you today. And I just pray that your hearts and your ears would be open so that you can take steps to where God is going to call you to go after this message. Because we're not here to play church. Life is too short. We're here to listen to God and, and We've only got a short window to do that in. And so would you welcome with me to the stage my wife, Heather Taves. Oh, I kind of feel like after that worship, we just all need to just sit down for a couple minutes. Ah, and just sort of be because God is in this place in such a powerful way and the only reason for us to be here is to meet with God and so we're just gonna we're gonna do that it's totally not in my notes but who cares um we're just we're just gonna have a moment where we just silence ourselves before God and quiet your hearts and just let him speak to you right now. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are enthroned on our worship. And as we turn our eyes towards you, that your spirit takes over and floods over us in ways that we don't understand. And God, we welcome you here. We desire more of you, God. We welcome you in this place today. God, I pray that as I share the words that I feel like you've given me to share for this church, that this just wouldn't be a a decent sermon or a great sermon, these would be your words. That they would not be my words, but they would be your Holy Spirit power. Taking this church to a level that we have not yet seen. And as Chris said, we are done playing church. We just want more of you, God. We love you. Thank you for being here. All right. Well, here we go. If you weren't here last week, uh, my husband Chris preached such a powerful word on the prophet Elijah. And I would beg you, if you did not hear that message, to go back on the podcast and listen to it. Um, not only was it such a strong challenge for each one of us in our daily pursuit of God, but it was the perfect setup for my message today. Chris left us last week with God's last instructions to Elijah, or God's instruction to Elijah, to anoint three men. Two of them became kings, and another, Elisha, would take his place as prophet. So we have Elijah, say Elijah, and we have Elisha, say Elisha. Get it? Okay, good. I may intermix the two. But today we're talking about Elisha. 
Elisha was a young man. He was the son of a wealthy landowner. And we first hear about him in scripture as Elijah comes to his home to anoint him as he's plowing a field. And I want to read to you what happened in those moments. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field. Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I will go with you. And if my son gets the call of God on his life like that, please son, come back and kiss me. (laughs) Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. They had a big party. The Bible doesn't say that. I added that. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So Elijah didn't even say a word to him. Yet, as Elisha was plowing a field, going about his normal day, he immediately stepped up when called to follow the path that God put right in front of him. Listen to me, church. God's anointing doesn't always come in a burning bush or a dramatic event. It often comes when you're doing the simple tasks that God has put right in front of you. If you want God's anointing in your life, be faithful with what he's put right in front of you. It doesn't tell us why God chose Elisha to be the one who took the great prophet Elijah's place. But it doesn't appear that he had written a bestseller or started a nonprofit or preached a world-renowned sermon. What we do know was that he was at home plowing a field. This leads me to believe that his anointing from God was due to the condition of his heart. He was humble. His heart was soft for God, and he was willing. You want God to use you in a powerful way? Then stop focusing on what talents you have to bring to God and start focusing on the condition of your heart. Stop holding up your, I have this talent and I have this calling as collateral for why God should use you. Stop complaining, I don't have a calling or I don't know what my gift is. And start with the condition of your heart. It all comes down to heart issues. God can and he will use someone whose heart is pure. I love this verse. Psalm 5110 says, create A clean heart in me, O God, and renew a faithful spirit within me. David's asking God, create that in me, God. Sometimes you have to ask for it. It's not just going to happen. Sometimes you have to ask God to create that clean heart in you. Elisha was faithful with what was right in front of him. And because of his pure heart, he was ready to receive the calling of God on his life. But this is important. It is your responsibility to check on your own heart and then ask God to purify it. 
The responsibility lies solely on you. Your heart condition isn't your spouse's responsibility. It isn't your kid's responsibility. And guess what? It isn't your church's responsibility. Yes, God may put people in your life to encourage you, to challenge you in this process, but the burden of your heart check always lies with you. Elisha's heart was pure, and it was ready for the anointing of God. So he left all that he knew to follow what God had called him to. This is unbelievable to me. Elisha continues on as Elijah's assistant for the next seven to eight years. We go one month, and we're like, oh, God, why did you call me to this? This is so hard. Seven to eight years. For five chapters, the work that Elijah did is talked about, and Elisha is not even mentioned at one time. This brings us to 2 Kings chapter 2. This might get a little bit long, but it's a super cool story, so hang in there with me, okay? If you want to follow along, 2 Kings chapter 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Can we pause there for one second? What? Elijah got taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. He didn't die a normal death like you and I will probably die. He got taken up in a whirlwind. That, that is just phenomenal. What a way to go. Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went together to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. Then Elijah, I love that. Um, Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Jericho. But Elisha replied again, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together to Jericho. Then the group of prophets from Jericho came to Elisha and asked him, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. But again, Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together. Fifty men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. This just popped into my head. Sometimes the naysayers, the noisemakers in your life, they want to see from a distance what's going on, but they don't actually want to cross the river to get where God is. Then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The water divided and the two of them went across on dry ground. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, listen carefully, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. And Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double portion of your spirit and become your successor. You have asked a very difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I am taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. 
As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen where he was taken. Then Elisha returned to the banks of the Jordan River. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Then the water divided and Elisha went across. So there's a few things I want to highlight from that passage. The first one is this. Elisha remained faithful to Elijah because he knew what was at stake. He said, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. He knew the responsibility that was about to be passed on to him, and he would not let Elijah out of his sight. He also wasn't in this to promote himself. He was once again faithful to what was right in front of him. He could have very easily, knowing that Elijah's end was near, gone off and began his own ministry. But he stayed faithful with Elijah to the very end. The second thing from that passage. He didn't let the drama and the noise from others take him off course. He wasn't afraid to shut down the negative voices around him. Two different times, two different groups of prophets. These weren't just commoners. These were God's prophets came to him telling them that his master was going to be taken from him that day. And two times he told them to be quiet. He knew they were a distraction, and if he took his eyes off of the path that he was on, he may miss what God was going to do. What he didn't know at this point was that the double portion of God's power that he was about to ask for would not be granted if he missed it. Had he been distracted by the noise from others, by the gossip and the clamoring, he would have missed out on the double portion. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we may miss out on something we don't even know is coming. I think we can sometimes let the noise around us shout louder than the call right in front of us. God wants to anoint you. He wants to use you in ways that you may never know if you keep letting the noise and the chatter of others distract you. I think one of Satan's biggest weapons against us today is distraction. If he can keep us distracted, he can keep us from being faithful to God's purpose for us. Number three, Elisha asked Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. He had seen God use Elijah in miraculous ways, and he desired that and more. When Elijah asked what he could do for Elisha, his request was, I would like a double portion of your spirit. He wanted to see God's hand at work through him even more than he had in the past. He desired more of God. And he wasn't afraid to ask for more responsibility. 
He knew that with more power came more responsibility. I think we often want God to anoint us and use us, but we only want tiny baby responsibility. We aren't willing to take on all of the work that comes with all of the power. So we keep our asks small and doable. We ask small because we can control small. If we ask big, we may have to give up control and actually trust God. I so want us to have a double portion mentality. God, give us more than we have ever seen before. Show us your power in ways that we have never seen. Elisha was asking God to do more miracles, show more power than what they had seen up until that point. He wanted more for God, from God. He wasn't satisfied with what they had seen. He knew there was more power, and he didn't want to miss out on it. God, give us that double portion mentality. And exactly what Elisha asked for happened. The next 10 chapters in 2 Kings are full of stories and miracles that God performed through Elisha. There's way too many to get into, but they're really cool. So if you have time sometime this week, go open 2 Kings and read the awesome miracles that Elisha saw God perform. There were small miracles. There were huge miracles. He saw people raised from the dead. He saw armies defeated. He saw evil kings destroyed. There's some crazy stories. And just one real quick one. So one day, Elisha is with a group of people. And he had come to this place. And they were building, um, essentially, a new church, a gathering place. You know, their, theirs had grown too small. And so they were building a bigger one because there were more people that wanted to gather. That is a good problem to have. So there's a man. He goes down to the river with these men who are building this church. And there's a man cutting logs to build this, this place. And as he's chopping the logs, his axe head falls into the river and sinks. And the man cries out, no, that was a borrowed axe. I mean, we've all been there, right? You borrow something and then you break it and you're like, oh, totally just defeated the purpose of borrowing it. So Elisha says, show me where it fell into the river. The man shows him. And Elisha takes a stick, and he throws it into the water, and immediately the axe head floats to the surface, and the man reaches in, grabs it, and he's got his axe back. So Elisha lived out what he asked for. He lived out a double portion of God's anointing power at work through him. We also know from the book of 2 Kings that Elisha was heavily involved with several different kings. They trusted him, and they asked for his help with their armies and their political endeavors. He wasn't afraid to be a man anointed by God and a man involved in political affairs. I think that's pretty cool. He instigated and led army rebellions that destroyed evil kings and their kingdoms. He didn't have the mentality, I can be a man of God or I can be this. It was, I can be a man of God and I can be this. Yet his anger and his tenacity towards evil was equally matched by his compassion for the poor 
and his miraculous gift for helping them. Elisha wasn't just a high and mighty prophet with ties to powerful kings in the military. He didn't just walk through life performing miraculous acts and grand military moves. He spent much of his time with the common people. One commentary said this, He spent his life among his fellow men and was concerned with their everyday problems. That sounds like a prophet I would want to know. That is a true hero. That is the definition of God's heart. People of all backgrounds, of every age, of all social statuses, and of every race. I've said it before, and I will continue to say it again until it's tattooed on our hearts. It is all about people. We're told, love God, love people. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be among people, seeing their needs, listening, intentional listening. Not very many people know how to do that. We're so busy thinking about what the next thing is that we want to say that we miss out on what the person right in front of us is saying. How can we be about people when we don't stop and listen to people? I challenge you this week, be an intentional listener. Practice it. The more you practice it, the better listener you will become. It's really quite simple. You just stop doing this, and you start doing this. Intentional listening. Because when you intentionally listen to people, you begin to see their hearts. You begin to see ways that you can serve them and bless them and pray for them and care for them. You begin to know them. If you get one thing from Elisha's life today, get this. Be with the people. Be concerned with their everyday problems. That is the best kind of gospel. You don't need a PhD to do that. You don't need to be mastery of the Bible. You just listen to people. So we're going to get back to Elisha in just a minute, but I'm going to take a hard left turn right now. And you might feel a little bit confused at first, but that's okay. Stick with me because I'll bring it all back together at the end. Um, This is something that I think there could be some freedom for someone here today in this, and I think there could be an awakening for others. And this is something I think needs to be addressed. We have a divide in our culture right now that has started to trickle over, that has trickled over into our churches. It's a divide that says we should be divided into like groups. Think back not that many years ago. None of us can remember this, but our grandparents and great-grandparents sure can. When schoolhouses were one room, where all ages learned and worked together. Now, we start as babies, put into the same room with all the other babies, and it continues from there. We attend school with people of the same age as us. We join small groups of people around the same age and season of life with us. And we don't understand each other or relate to someone in a different generation than we are in. We've so segregated ourselves into like groups. Our culture has put a spotlight on segregating each generation and causing a divide in between them. 
So much so that we've named generations, and each generation is mostly defined by their difference to the generation before or after them. So let's go through some of those that are alive today. First, we have the GI generation, also known as the greatest generation. This would be some of our grandparents and some of our great-grandparents. These people grew up during the Great Depression. They went on to fight in World War II. These were men and women who fought not for fame or recognition, but because it was the right thing to do. Then we have the silent generation. These are many of our grandparents. These people include some who lived through World War II and most who lived through or fought in the Korean War or the Vietnam War. Then we have the baby boomers. The baby boomers are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s now. Baby boomers are associated with the rejection or a redefinition of traditional values. As a group, they were the wealthiest, most active, most physically fit generation up to that time, and they were among the first to grow up genuinely expecting that the world would improve with time. One feature of the boomers was that they tend to think of themselves as a special generation, very different from those that had come before them. Then there's Generation X, or Gen X. That's my generation. Those of us in our late 30s and 40s. Gen X was a part of a birth rate recession. So there are a lot fewer of us around, and I'm really sorry for that, because I know y'all are missing out. <laughs> Gen Xers are often called the MTV generation. And the US Census Bureau reports that Gen X holds the highest education level when looking at current age groups, which may be why all of my peers look at me strangely when I tell them I don't have a college degree. My life makes total sense now. <laughs> then there are millennials. There's no precise date when the generation of millennials starts and ends. That actually made me laugh out loud. So anyone who wants to can be a millennial. Millennials are those in their late teens, 20s, and mid-30s. Alternative names for this group when they were naming millennials were Generation We. Significant increase in birth rates during the 1980s and 1990s means that there are a lot of millennials. Y'all are laughing. I didn't say anything. <laughs> There are four basic generational types which repeat in a cycle. So millennials have a strong sense of community, both local and global. They're very much like the civic-minded GI generation from before. Millennials in adulthood are detached from institutions and networked with friends. Hello, social media. So we see that there are these differences, and we see that there are generational differences often tear us apart instead of bring us together. We have a generation alive today that remembers that if you had a single telephone in your home, you were considered wealthy or privileged. And we have a generation alive today that thinks if they go anywhere without their own personal handheld telephone, that the world has ended. 
We often don't stop to think about how many changes have affected our life over the last 100 years and how difficult this may be for those not in our generation to feel like they no longer fit in. They begin to feel irrelevant. They feel old, washed up, used up, not smart enough, and not wanted. Our culture preaches, if it's old, it's not good enough. Replace it. Replace it with something younger, newer, or better. Somehow, this has crept into our churches, too. We've heard it many times over the years. Well, that church is full of young people, and I just wouldn't fit in there. Or, everyone at that church is old, they don't get me, all they sing are hymns, and I don't really get it. And we've segregated ourselves in the body of Christ. We've taken what was meant to be a family and we've turned it into clubs where everyone acts alike, looks alike, and thinks alike. Instead of a family where many generations are needed and represented and each have their role and fit, knowing that they are needed, wanted, and loved. A church should be a family. A family is designed to function at its very best when every generation and both genders are represented. My prayer is that our church will be a part of changing this trend, that we will work on having a multi-generational atmosphere where everyone of any age is welcome, and not just welcome, but used and needed. The only reason that any of us young people, and I'm putting myself in this category, have reached the places we've reached is because those who have gone ahead of us have allowed us to stand on their shoulders. But we must be sure that as we stand on their shoulders, we don't crush them with our disrespect. There is a need in this church for everyone of every age. We desperately need the wisdom and life experience of the silent generation and of the baby boomers. And we need the energy and optimism of the millennials. This is how we function best. When we celebrate each other's strengths and not highlight our differences. The prophet Joel spoke these words as a prophecy um, of what was to come. And I believe this is for our day and maybe for a generation that is not even born, but we're going to claim this for our day right now. Joel 2. Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on the servants, men and women alike. To the young people in this church, I beg of you, see the wisdom and the strength that the generations above you have to offer you intentionally listen when they speak. Just because they can't write code and they have no idea what a screenshot is and they have no idea what you mean when you tag Instagram with, this is my bae, don't <laughs> discount them. Don't 
discount them. Because what they do bring is worth more than any of us could afford. Rock bottom doesn't always have to be your teacher. Learn from those who are ahead of you instead. And to those of us, to those that are ahead of us, to my parents, to my grandparents' generation, please, please, please support us and encourage us and cheer us on. Because your belief and your support, it fills up our tanks. Please don't despair about how bad the world is getting because we're actually pretty fond of it and we have high hopes for the future. But we need to see that you believe that too. We need you to be positive about the future that we face and we desperately need your support. Let's be people that build bridges between generations and we use those bridges to cross back and forth over into each other's worlds. So you're saying, why did you get into all that stuff about generations? I told you it was a hard left turn. Here's why. Because my most favorite story of Elisha, and it's only two short verses. I've read it before, but this time as I read it, what I just shared with you about generations is what God dropped into my spirit. And I knew that I had to bring this to our church. 2 Kings 13, verses 20 and 21. Then Elisha died and was buried. Groups of Moabite raiders, Moabites were people who were enemies of Israel, groups of Moabite raiders used to invade the land each spring. They were like, oh, it's spring. Let's go invade the land. Once, when some Israelites were burying a man, they spied a band of these raiders. So they hastily threw the corpse into the tomb of Elisha and fled. But as soon as the body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man revived and jumped to his feet. Elisha was dead. And yet his bones were still so full of God's power and anointing that a dead man was brought back to life because of those dry bones. No one is too used up or too old or too young for God to use. It is never about your age, your gender, or your experience. It is always about God's anointing. Revival comes from the word revive. When something is revived, amazing growth begins to happen. And it is time for revival in our world. Revival that many of our generations have never seen. A pastor that I love to listen to said this. I believe the next great move of God, the next revival will not be through great preachers and speakers, but through ordinary, behind-the-scenes people whose God's Spirit comes to rest upon. Church, that is you. Through people who are willing to ask for a double portion of God's Spirit. Through people who are faithful with what God's put right in front of them. 
through people of any age and any generation who are willing to set aside differences and be faithful to one another through people who desire to experience more of God, through people who are continually doing heart checks and asking God to create a pure heart inside of them. The very last chapter of Revelation, the very last chapter in the Bible, close to the last verse, Jesus is speaking. And what you need to understand about the book of Revelation is it is still to come. Most of the Bible is history. It has already happened. But revelation is still to be fulfilled. We have not seen that time in history yet. And so Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give this message for the churches. That's us. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires, who desires, drink freely from the water of life. The bride is the church. The bride is us. The Spirit speaks through us, through people, through sons and daughters of the Most High God. And the Holy Spirit speaks through the through the bride, God's people. And this verse is saying that. We're asking to see Jesus. We're asking to experience more of Jesus. We're asking for more of him. We're asking for a double portion. As we heard last week, eat the bread. Eat the bread. But Jesus says, if you are thirsty, he is called the living water. He says, if you are thirsty, come and drink of me and you will no longer thirst. If you are thirsty for more of God, come. If you want a double portion of his spirit, ask him for it. It doesn't matter your place. It doesn't matter your age. Come to Jesus and ask for more. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on these people. God, I pray that we would be people that would ask for a double portion of your spirit so that we can see more of you than we have ever seen before. God, stir something up within us that would cause us to desire more of you, God. That is my prayer for you today, that you would be willing to ask for a double portion of what God has for you because you want to see more than you have ever seen before of God. And so as the band sings this song, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it in. Take in these words. Take in the words that I've just spoken. Let God minister to your soul and then act on what he's asking you to do. Whether that means you stay in your seat, you get on your knees, you come to the front because you just, you just got to take a step. You do whatever you need to do in this moment. And church, Let's believe that God is going to pour out his spirit in ways that we have never seen before. Would you stand up on your feet and let's worship together.